Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today on the show, we have the amazing and inspirational Katrina Webb. In the light of the recent Olympics and in the up-and-coming Paralympics, we thought, who better to have on the show than the one and only gold medal winner herself? When Katrina was two years old, she was diagnosed with a mild form of cerebral palsy. But being the trooper that she is, she didn't let this hold her back. Coming from a very successful sporting bloodline, Katrina won a scholarship with the Australian Institute of Sport in netball. When at the AIS, her sporting career took an unexpected turn and it was discovered that Katrina had been achieving success in netball whilst playing with an impediment that she had kept secret. Her right leg was actually shorter than her left. A coach at the AIS then encouraged her to become involved in disability sport. And eventually, she'd apply for the Paralympics. The rest writes itself, where she went on to win two gold in running and one silver in the long jump at the 1996 Atlanta Paralympics. Four years later, she was the first torchbearer to enter the stadium for the opening ceremony of the Sydney 2000 Paralympic Games, where she went on to win two silver and a bronze. Four years later, again, in her last Paralympics, much to her elation, Katrina finished her career with a Paralympic record and gold medal in the 400-meter running event. In 2006, she was selected on behalf of the International Paralympic Committee to speak at the United Nations in New York, and in 2017 was inducted into the South Australian Sports Hall of Fame. Off the track, many listeners may know Katrina as being the founder and director of the New Day Leadership, a platform which helps inspire leadership for the greater good. Katrina is also the director of Silver to Gold High Performance Solutions, which specializes in empowering organizations and teams and individuals to achieve their best. On top of this, Katrina is an international speaker, speaking at events such as TEDx. She's a leadership and personal mastery consultant, an accredited trainer in well-being and resilience, and still has time to be a physiotherapist. To round off her extremely busy but yet productive life, Katrina is also a mother to not one but three beautiful boys and a wife to former Australian Olympic water polo athlete, Eddie Dennis. In the episode, Katrina and I talk about her journey and her experience of being an athlete and she talks to her thoughts on the role that sports plays in setting up people for success, not only in the business environment but in life itself. She also shares how challenging it was to deal with her disability and the fear of being different. We talked about her desire to keep putting herself into situations which are tough, uncomfortable, scary, such as speaking at the TEDx event, trekking both the Kokoda Track and Everest Base Camp, not once but twice, and currently how she's over in Japan hosting the Paralympics on Channel 7. To finish up, we also discussed Katrina's thoughts about what businesses can do to support their people through this pandemic from the well-being perspective and the importance that organisational culture plays on that well-being. So if you love the episode, which I'm sure you will, be sure to hit the subscribe button and check us out at synergyiq.com.au and SynergyIQ on all the social media outlets. Cheers. 
So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host, and today we have the beautiful Katrina Webb on the show. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, Daniel. I want to start off in a slightly different fashion. I want to set a scene, right? So if we we set, set a scene now, we're in the year 2000 in a city named Sydney at the opening ceremony of the Paralympic Games. There's 110,000 screaming fans in the stadium, 2.2 billion viewers at home watching who are glued to their TV sets. And in walks a young 23-year-old Australian who four years earlier took home two golds and a silver at the Atlanta Paralympic Games. All eyes are watching and she walks in holding one of the most iconic artefacts in sporting history, which is the Olympic torch. And that was you. That's an amazing, amazing story. And I can see you getting a little bit emotional. Oh, yeah. How, how, did, how did that make you feel at that time? And how proud are you of yourself? Wow, that um, has got me quite emotional. Well done <laughs> on that. That was a really beautiful um recollection and you really took me back to that moment and as we're recording this right now we're in the middle of the olympics and the paralympics is only weeks away so i'm feeling it in my soul which is probably why i'm I'm connecting to that emotion Uh, that moment for me was spectacular Um, and the story behind it is that i only found out three days before (laughs) that i was actually doing it when we landed in the sydney village uh, one of the one of my amazing coaches who actually discovered me um, along my journey said to me, um, "You need to go and speak to our you know, president at the time and the CEO." And I was told then that I would have a role in the opening ceremony, carrying the torch into the stadium. And I wasn't to tell anybody, yeah, wow. which was the biggest secret I had to keep. In fact, my parents weren't and my family weren't coming because my cousin happened to be getting married <laughs> on that weekend. And uh, so I said to my mum and dad, please watch the ceremony um, and don't switch it off. Like sometimes if they don't see you walk out with the Australian team, yeah. people get distracted. I said, please don't get distracted. And it was a surprise for them. And, yeah. and it, was, it was an amazing moment. I remember actually watching the Olympics my husband um, attended the Olympics as a water polo player. So, you know, I watched him play and I remember watching Kathy Freeman do that and think, I wonder, I wonder how you'd ever get chosen to do that. And I remember mm. Dawn Fraser carrying out the flag and thinking, I wonder how old you would have to be or what you'd have to <laughs> And I didn't know that that was about to happen. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, look, you, those moments come in your life and we've only ever had the Paralympics once in Australia. Yeah. So to have it in my time as an athlete, uh, to know now we've got a second Paralympics happening yeah. in Brisbane, which is extraordinary. But, yeah, thank you for, for that right. moment. No, well, you you um, deserve that. It's and not... it was a moment before phones as yeah, well. That's, that's what I love right. to remind people of. 2000, there was no, you know, Facebook, Instagram. No. People were watching. That 2.2 billion people watching mm. uh, was, yeah, an incredible moment in my life. What did it feel like walking into the stadium? At that point, like yeah. I've stood. I've I've got a career in in sport and a background, and I've stood on front on Adelaide Oval on the Australia Day opening of a one day out. But I was uh, um, getting awarded a, a, a winner's trophy on that morning, and Australia were playing. I wasn't playing for Australia, but hearing the national anthem and yeah. everything in front of fifty thousand people was amazing. I couldn't imagine. 110,000. Oh, yes. And it's not many people get that opportunity, in Mm. fact, and even during these times now. 
um, to to be in front of an audience that big is extraordinary. Um, and the bit that I loved about it though was when I ran down the 100 metre straight, the whole Australian team were lined up um, uh, along that 100 metre home straight and they actually didn't know either because it was such a secret. So I remember just seeing their faces um, in support um, and cheering me on was was really wonderful. And the, another bit that I really enjoyed was I then passed the torch on to Anthony Clark, who's another yeah. South Australian gold medalist from Atlanta yeah. in judo, and he um, is blind. And so I actually then had this wonderful gift of of running with him um, and enjoying that experience with him, which was, yeah, which was really special. Just amazing. So as you said, the Tokyo Olympics are, uh, are happening right now and we can go deeper and further into your career and how you went there, but I want to cast our minds back to you growing up um, and when you first may have realised that there was something there not wrong we're not gonna say wrong but there was something there that wasn't quite hitting the mark what do you remember the point in in which you uh, in which you discovered that about yourself yeah the point where I would have memories back and I think if anyone remembers back to when can you start when, yeah. when do you have memories yeah. that aren't a photograph and and it would be around the age of five you know starting to go to school um, you know, my memories in those early days of knowing that there was something different was that I, I had to wear a night plaster to bed um, from age three. So that was something that I've got, you know, obviously consistent memories. And I had to wear that until I stopped growing. Mm. And I'm just under six foot. And I did stop growing around the age of 12. So when I worked out, I w- had to wear that night plaster for three and a half thousand so nights. So what was the reason for the night plaster? So, three and yeah, a half thousand, sorry. Wow. Three and a half thousand nights, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, um yeah, it basically I popped it on at night and it kept my ankle at 90 degrees, which okay. made sure as I was growing my calf muscle wouldn't um, shorten. So okay. if my foot naturally just relaxed and then my calf muscle was in a shortened position at night, um, then as I was growing it would be harder for me to walk on my heel and I'd, I'd toe walk more, okay. which is quite a, um, a com- I'm a physio now and, and using plastering and night plasters is, is a common thing yeah. um, for children while they're growing to make sure they get good range and get good um, you know, placement of their limbs if they've been born yeah, with different absolutely. different. Um, but for me it's an interesting thing because my parents didn't, didn't note much until I was age three and that's when I started limping consistently. But when I actually speak to my mum, she knew, she could feel deep inside that there was something different with me. My sister's only 14 months older mm. so she she was carrying around a baby, you know, not long after I was born mm. and so she would tell me, you know, when I would, when she'd carry me on one side, she could feel it was different to the other side so I could grip well with my left side but when I was on the other hip trying to grip with my right, she could feel that it wasn't, wasn't as strong. Yeah. So she, she knew in her intuition that there was something a little bit different and then when I was three, I started limping and, and it wasn't going away. So that's where they started doing some investigations. And that's when it was picked up that I had suffered an injury to my brain, you know, in utero. They didn't use the term cerebral palsy back then. Um, they called it, you know, simple as that, an injury to my brain in utero. And that's when they said I had to wear that night plaster. So my early memories are of wearing that plaster and going to see a physio to get a new one made. And then I'd see the specialist orthopedic um, orthopedic paediatric specialist once or twice a year to yeah. see how I was going. So you grew up just 
uh, with you know, almost your back against the wall from an early age and still achieve so much. You're, net, you're playing a lot of netball early on. Yeah. Can you tell us how you, yeah. what that looked like? Well, you know, I think when I look at growing up, when you have to wear a night plaster to bed, you do know that there's something different about you. Mm. And I actually can't curl my right toes, so that's pretty significant. Mm. So when you start to realise, well, I can't curl my toes, I can't point my toes very good, my balance isn't that good on my right side. As a young kid, I I knew there was a difference and you're looking at me right now, you can't see it very well though. Um, And so I remember as a young kid thinking, well, I don't really know what it is and I don't want to be different. Mm. You remember back to being at school, if there was anything that was different about you, kids can make it pretty hard. They can. Yeah. Yeah. So I just thought, I just want to be like everybody else. I'm going to work hard to cover it up. And I remember saying to my parents, can we not tell anybody? Can we keep it a secret? So what happened then is like I had this contract with myself to to want to prove to people that I was like them mm-hmm. and that meant I had to work hard. And and, I, and my parents were fantastic with parenting. Um, I, I have learned a lot from them and I have three boys now and I do follow a lot of their philosophies. They, there's that lovely concept of, you know, really putting kids out there and, they got me to do as many things as I could and I had to finish it. So if I started a term of something, I couldn't pull out mm. after two weeks. I had to get, this was their rules, get to the end, then you choose whether you continue yeah. on. And we do the same with our kids Don't now. let the team down halfway through. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And if you don't like something, suck it up. You yeah. know, get to the end because you might like it after yeah. 10 weeks or 12 weeks. Yeah. And so for me, they did that. I They made me do ballet and now that did suck because I can't point my toes. And I remember the teacher going, you know, that blonde girl in the back, point your toes, and it was awful. So I stopped that as soon as I could. I wasn't great at calisthenics. Um, and I was good at netball. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, there was things that I found that I'm good at. And I think from any, if anyone's helping people to find their potential, Give people a chance to try many different things, mm. and there are things that you can find that you can um, you can do well in. Um, and I did netball was the thing that I did well in, and and then I put more time and effort into it. And once you start to get discovered that you've got a bit of talent, then you get put in another group, and then you get more training. And you know, for me, it, it escalated like that. And I, you know, I started playing state level um, from under sixteens, which was exciting. Mm. Yeah, kudos. So, when, when was the the actual time though that you thought? Actually, the Paralympics could be something here. There could be something in this. Yeah. Yeah, I will add to that. What was helpful was my dad was a very good athlete and my mum's maiden name is Spawn. And so so if you're from South Australia, Rachel Spawn is my first cousin. She's commentating the Olympic basketball right now. Um, Cousins played AFL football. So I did have some good sporting genes. And I made it to the AIS in Canberra in 1995 on a full able-bodied netball scholarship. So that was, you know, my first, you know, so making it through state teams and then getting selected in national squads after mm-hmm. nationals mm-hmm. Um, and my incredible coach from Adelaide Margangove um, who many people would know encouraged me to apply for a scholarship in Canberra and I did and you know I, I won it in 1995 which was oh, extraordinary I was one of 12 girls from Australia to live at the AIS full-time, fully funded, playing netball in the best netball league in Australia. So you can imagine 1995 for me I was 17 thinking wow this is this is fantastic. Yes. And that didn't go to plan. Mm. Um, I got a knee injury, sidelined for 10 weeks. Um, I then started not getting picked for the team and Mm. that sucks. Like when you can't do anything, like I was such a hard worker Mm. and, you know, they say whoever they may be that hard work always pays off. I realised in this situation it 
there was nothing else I could do. Mm. And I didn't get picked for the team and that was really hard to deal with. And that, you ever told a reason why? Or? From that coach? Yeah. Yeah, and look, I agree with her that the hard truth was that playing in the best netball league in Australia, which is one of the best in the world, and I've got mild cerebral palsy, mm. um, which I was hiding, which, you know, I didn't really know what it was, but I was doing yeah, my absolute yeah. best. So they, they weren't aware, yeah. At that level, you need to be 100%. You know, yeah, like I couldn't change anything on my right side. Mm. I was an incredible netballer. Um, I could read the play well. My left side must be super extraordinary <laughs> to get to that. I, I, I look at myself and go, wow, yeah. to get there with what, you know, I had to, my limitations on my right side was extraordinary. And the, the hard truth is that that was going to be difficult. I could still come back to Adelaide and play at a state level, no problem, mm. but this was talking about the highest level yeah. in Australia. Um, and then the interesting thing that happened in that year is that there was a coach at the AIS training the next lot of para-athletes to go to the Atlanta Paralympic Games. Mm-hmm. His name's Chris Nunn. He's actually from Adelaide um, and he was married to Glenis Nunn. Okay. And I love this, this story because he noticed me walking one day around the AIS mm-hmm. and he saw my cerebral palsy straight away. His eye is trained to look for that. And he got so excited <laughs> because here I am as an able-bodied netballer and he watched me walk and, you know, walk, watched me walk again and then through a series of, you know, um, chats with um, physiotherapists and a few other things um, I did with him, it was confirmed. It wasn't diagnosed because, yeah, you know, yeah. it was confirmed that what I had was cerebral palsy. So you can imagine how excited this coach got <laughs> because cerebral palsy is in the Paralympics, yeah. right? It was in there way before I, yeah. I, I came along. Yeah. There were women like me competing in the Paralympics way before I was discovered. Yeah. And so this moment he came up to me and, and it was extraordinary. He said to me, oh, Katrina, guess what? You know, what you've got is cerebral palsy. In a year's time, if you get classified and if you can qualify in a Paralympic sport, you can come with us to the 1995 Atlanta, 1996 Atlanta Paralympic Games. Well done. So how does that feel for someone who didn't want anyone to know? Yeah, <laughs> well, a great question. It, it, um, it, uh, to be honest, it didn't feel good. When, no. when someone comes up to you and you're in hiding with something you don't like about mm. yourself, you're trying to prove to people you're good enough, you make it to the AIS on an able-bodied netball program and then someone comes and says to you that you can go to the Paralympics. And it wasn't anything about that for me. It was what triggered me in that moment was he said I could go to a Paralympics, which means I'm a Paralympian, which means people are going to know that there's something wrong with me and I don't like that part about Mm. myself. It was that bit that really frightened me and I didn't have any tools in my kit to know what to do with that and Mm. and that really triggered my shame and the more I understand about the emotion of shame now is when you feel shame, it's when you say that you're not good enough. Mm that you're broken. It's not my behaviour is the thing that's wrong. You feel like you're and, – and for a long time I was hiding because I didn't feel like I was good enough. I, I felt like I was broken because I had a difference. Mm. And you've got to remember I grew up in this, you know, I was born in 77 and grew up in the 80s and did, look, think about what disability looked like then. I didn't even have one kid in my school with a disability. Mm. Yeah. It's you know, tough. there wasn't anyone to role model yourself on to go, actually, I'm really proud of being different. Um, people didn't even know what the Paralympic Games was. I didn't even know what it was. And so for someone to say you could go to this Games, um, I was worried personally about all of that side. In that moment, though, I will say this and a couple of things because Chris Nunn is an extraordinary human. It was the way he said it to me. 
He doesn't have a disability. He loves the Paralympic movement so much because it's about sport mm. and it's about, um, you know, unlocking and being your best. And he was so excited about telling me this that put aside my fear, I could feel his passion, I could feel his authentic desire for me to want to be a part of something that was going to transform me and, and others. Mm. And I felt that mm. and I just thought, okay, there is an, there's an opportunity here to look at this deeper. Um, this isn't about just how I'm going to feel. This is about something bigger than myself here. And in that moment, he gave me a wonderful piece of advice. He said to me, Katrina, before you make a decision about what to do here, because this is a big decision, how about you go and speak to somebody? And how about you go and speak to the sports psychologist? Now, I'm at the Australian Institute of Sport, one of the best facilities in the world. Mm. And when he said to me, go and speak to a sports psychologist, I went, yeah, of course I will. I had a psychologist in my team at the South Australian Sports Institute mm. because I was a young netballer. Psychology and sport go together. Yeah, they do. That equals good performance, right. right? And so I went and sat with this psychologist and it was in that moment I was able to really look at this situation and make the best decision moving forward. There's so, I've got so many questions that can come out of that. I do want to say there is that um, – the Tokyo Paralympic um, commercial that is out at the moment, which almost well, which paints the picture. Uh, it's an amazing commercial. If you can look it up, it's on. Just go on YouTube and Channel Four. Channel Yeah, from the UK. Yeah, and and look up the the Tokyo Paralympic um, commercial. Uh, we'll put a link in the podcast as well. Um, but it it, it you, you just see the the effort and the. Like it, you know, when we talk about back, backs against the wall, some of the the um, the position, the starting positions of these of these people who are going through the Paralympics is so far behind, and there's so much more effort that goes into getting themselves up. Um, it is it's an amazing point. It's almost superhuman, right? That's what they will, they refer to it as in the ad. It is superhuman. So yeah, it, it's it's such a inspiring sport uh, the, well event I should say the Olympic, the Paralympics so um, yeah it is yeah. and and I and I'll say that the Olympics is as well um, to be an Olympian and I, and I married one and to be a Paralympian myself if you look at what's the similarity in that is it's, it's humans that have skill sets and and the right skill sets to make it to that level mm -hmm. and yes the Paralympic athletes have other hurdles to come across um, yeah. even for some athletes getting out of bed could and getting ready for the day could take them two hours yeah. where Correct. other people can jump out of bed so yeah. there's another story there um, of course this package though of what it takes to be an Olympian or Paralympian is very similar mm. um, and and you've got to have all the, you have to have all the package. It's you know my my husband and I talk about this a lot. You know people think because somebody has talent in a particular sport they're going to make it, and they could be the most talented and they don't make it because yeah. they haven't got the grit, they haven't got the discipline, they haven't. When the, when you can't be bothered going to training, you don't. Mm. Um, and for all of the athletes that I've come across that have made it, they've got that that extra that grit. They know how to keep going. Mm. On those days where you just don't want to, um, it is it's a very special package that requires a lot of support and um, 
a lot of discipline to keep keep yeah. going. Do you feel that we talk about sports psychology and I'm really interested in, in understanding how that all worked out for you, that journey, yes. that, that, those early conversations. But do you feel that, and I'm going to throw business in and amongst this, do you feel that the power of sport or the, you know, the um, – the desire, and I've played again. I've played in in team sports. I've represented um, quite high levels in cricket when I was when I was younger in my junior days. Uh, and just the idea of um, of setting a goal with a team of a bunch of people who you don't normally interact with, and, and setting yourself. You know, with cricket, I was hitting that. 10 cent piece on the cricket pitch. I was a bowler and I'd run in and for hours by myself, hours after hours after hours. It's like, no, I've, I've got to make this team. I've got to, I've got to prove myself. I've got to get better. I've got to, you know, this constant desire to grow and improve and and um, and and that push just keeps moving forward. And I can see you, you've gone out and, and started your own businesses, and you often see a lot of successful sporting people go out. Do you believe that that it's the resilience probably that comes from constantly pushing yourself and constantly hurting yourself and getting yourself back up and you're going to have your ups and downs. There's going to be days that um, it feels like you should quit but you just keep pushing through. Do you feel like that carries a very big importance in life and in business? Yeah, yeah look, you can. It's a it's a, a wonderful school to go through mm-hmm. and for a long time, you know, I, I suppose I battle with this a little bit because I remember when I retired as an athlete and if you've trained for 30 hours a week mm. and some of us may have meddled, um, which for me, yes, I have, um, and then I'll go to my husband as well. He trained as much as me for as long as me and didn't win a medal at mm. in water polo at the Olympic Games in water polo. Um, yet we went through the same school and learnt the same things. Um, and then you you finish and there's no PhD. You know, if I yeah. put that time into university um, or into a business, then my business could have, you know, really yeah. grown in that period of time. So it's an interesting part to come out of to go, okay, well, I've spent the last 12 years training 30 hours a week and now this part has stopped in my life. Yeah. And then you have to start new. You have to transition into what's next and what's new. And if it's done well, and I know I did do it well through my transition because I was always working in parallel business and sport because I knew that firstly I didn't earn money from being an athlete and yeah. had to, um, but I knew that if I transitioned beautifully that when I retired I wouldn't have that low. I could just keep growing and business could keep moving forward, which it has. Um, there is a, an a unique skill set, absolutely, from mm. sport. Um, not every, not doesn't say that everyone no, can no, do it because not. we're all, we all. However, I do agree that if you've been through that school, an amazing skill set um, that can be transferred into business and in and transferred into in, anything. Yeah, um, from a be, life perspective. Oh, I mean, yes. yeah. And the bit I love about sport is that yes, you're learning all of those. Um, uh, skills, your, your personal development skills, and it's also wrapped around moving your body. Mm. And yeah, more so than ever now, from a health perspective, <laughs> a health perspective yeah. mental health and wellbeing is absolutely crucial. And I've seen athletes also crash because if if mental health and wellbeing wasn't their passion, yet sport was done more from a work perspective, and then they retire 
And because they're not um, doing their sport, which for them was more their work, they drop off their mental health and wellbeing practices. Mm. For someone like me who's a physio who loves mental health and wellbeing, I was doing sport really for that reason, mm. that I've come out of it and, th- and been thriving after retiring because I've used those skills and, and now teach them to others. I've seen other athletes really struggle mm. because they haven't embedded those mental health and wellbeing principles because for them sport stopped. Yeah, yeah. And they haven't transferred those, no, that skill set. No, over. and it wasn't what they were passionate about. Yeah. They were passionate about doing sport because it was their work. Mm. And then they transition their work into another yeah. field that those things can drop off. So, so is that um, a big part of the sports psychology that they should be taught? That look, there's going to be a point one day where let's get, let's yeah. be very frank that your body's not going to be able to continue any further at the elite level that yes. you know the new kids on the blocks are coming through. Um, that we need to start thinking about how we can transition your mindset into another world. Yeah, there's there's a lot more being done now, yeah, which okay. is fantastic. And, in fact, I've been working with a company um, out of the UK that um, were some successful male athletes that have started their own company working with some really large professional services that are being that transfer um organization to help elite athletes who have made it to the top who are fantastic in business and a lot of them have got um, even masters on top they get into the corporate world and they really struggle Mm. because if you've retired at 30 and never been in the corporate world Mm. because your work has been on the sporting field this company is doing wonderful things to help transition athletes to you know to business and professional services and helping them with that gap and once they've helped with that transition these athletes are doing really one, and professional services are really wanting yeah. to recruit these athletes because, uh, to answer they that question, <laughs> they know they've got the package. Yeah. So to help athletes transition into what does business look like with this skill set is is the gap. And I know a lot of alumni and sports are now taking that responsibility yeah. to not just let athletes go to go. What's next? Yeah, well, you think about the desire and the, the, their work ethic on a day-to-day basis. They're getting up at five o'clock every single morning. This is what you hear that the senior execs of the world are doing, right? Yes. So the, uh, there's athletes that have been doing it their whole lives from a young age. Yes. So the habits yes. are ingrained. It's yeah. just about how do we transition. Yes. Our That's right. Process. And you imagine if you're a senior exec and all of a sudden you had to stop. Yeah. And retire at thirty. Yeah. And then go into another completely different field. So, you know, I've I've actually done a little bit of work with organisations helping them to transition their their retirees into what's next because I know what it feels like to retire Mm. and it's a really hard transition if you haven't done the preparation of what, you know, along your journey. And Mm. a lot of people, when if you're listening to this and you're thinking about retirement or close to, and I know some professional organisations say that directors have to retire at age 56 or mm. 55. And so I know that they do do some work around that transition to what's next instead of it saying, well, you're retiring. It's like, well, what's next? And as an athlete, I had to learn to go on to what was next. Mm. Always got to think forward. Yeah. You said you mentioned the, uh, earlier that you, you could read the play. That, that in itself is a skill set yeah. that not many people have. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's something that can be taught. It's having that uh, that view of three or four steps down the track. Oh, it is a skill set. Is yes. that something that you found that's held you in good stead? A very, very mm. good, actually. Uh, yeah. Look, if I, if I was to look at why I was so successful as a netballer and to think, yeah, I was um, 
um, very successful with my cerebral palsy at the top level. It's that unique ability to read. Always could and it is my skill set now. Mm. Um, you know, I am a qualified physiotherapist so you can see how that skill set can be transferred into reading the play um, yeah. from a um, physiotherapy point of view. But even in terms of day-to-day, I have a great ability to um, to critically think and to look forward and to problem solve um, to how to navigate this uncertainty that we're in now. And I feel like that skill set has really helped me to thrive in this changing time mm-hmm. um, than instead of, you know, being held back. Yeah. Well, on that point, we've mm-hmm. just come out of lockdown in here in Adelaide and there are a lot of people who are feeling a little bit all over the shop just purely because they're not able to read the play. They're really yeah. living in the now, which is kind of what you're supposed to do in a way, live in the present moment. But, you know, I've always had the idea that um, keep an eye on the future and make sure you're planning for that. Yeah. What are you working with with some of the some of the people at the moment in that mental health and wellbeing space? Yeah. You, you know, even for myself in terms of um, – so I have, a, you know, a company that does put on large events and a lot of events which brings people together. Uh, so I only work as a physiotherapist one weekend a month mm-hmm. to keep my registration. However, I feel <laughs> like I work as a physio every day because it's that thinking yeah. that I learned at university to help analyse situations, to critically think, to then problem solve and to help, you know, give people s- solutions that they can go away and try and test and then come back. I love doing that for him. That's that's at my core what I love doing. I love holding a space where people can learn and grow and and I can help them with some solutions. Um, so I feel like I work as a physio every day. I just don't like fixing body parts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so for me in terms of my own work and putting on my own programs, what has been really helpful has is to have plan A, B, C, D and E mm. and to go through, okay, if this happens, what's where do we go to next? Because, you know, people love getting together. Yeah. People want to get together. Right. I do know from most of my clients, people want in-person events on and people want to experience that. Um, and Which so is so much more meaningful. It is. When you're and a, you yeah. can read body language. Oh, you can absolutely. Read and you, you share read, chemi- yeah. good chemicals yeah, absolutely. by being in a room together. So yeah, Zoom feels very transactional. Yeah, you, yeah. And I know from one of my good friends um, who's a specialist in this, you don't share chemicals over Zoom. No, no. <laughs> Which you just don't get that feel-good, you know, hormones when Unless we share can, information. We Bodysuit. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's actually a movie about that, which is uh, it's called Ready Player One. I'm not sure if you've yes, heard of it. Yes, yeah, yeah. When they have this bodysuit, yeah. and you can feel all the that's different emotions. That's right. And yeah. Stuff. So for but, me, I've had to have. Um, <laughs> I've had, if I'm going to do something, there's got to be plan A, B, C, D and E, which is really helpful because I know then if that, it's okay. So you kind of, you're able to go with the flow knowing that you've got, you've thought it out. Yeah, I think that's a really critical point that, and and this is what I'm talking about. I don't believe that too many people do this, and it is a skill set, is to not just have a plan A and potentially a plan B. It's where I find majority of people are thinking in plan A and plan B. It's having that C, D, and E, and knowing that E is an absolute possibility. So if it does happen, being okay with it yeah. is also a skill set. That's right. And communicating to people that yeah. this is what plan E will be mm. um, if you're coming on board to this UK with that. Um, 
What I would also say, though, to help with this time is that, you know, if we go back to my story um, and that moment with a psychologist when I, you know, I was encouraged to sit down and make a decision about moving forward into the Paralympics and that moment in 1995 was a significant moment for me because this psychologist got me to sit down and he said, um, okay, we are sitting at a table. He had two big pieces of butcher's paper out in front of me and he said, look, Katrina, you've, you've got a decision to make here um, and this could be a life-changing decision and, and we're, we're going through that right now with the last couple of years, aren't yeah. we? We're making yeah. decisions that are really transforming ourselves, our families, um, people are deciding where to move, mm-hmm. um, whether to where to have their businesses. Um, and he said, on this side of the paper, write down all the things that you're worried about. Let's write down, let's call them negatives, about you going to a Paralympic Games. Okay, we're going to put them all on this piece of paper. And on this side, we're going to write down all the positives and all the opportunities that could come out of it. And that's as simple as he got me to do. I got out the pen and we we put it down and, and he said, then we'll look at it and then we'll we'll have all of the thinking on the table and then we'll balance, make a balanced decision. I remember so clearly he telling me this at age 18. And no one had ever had this conversation no. with me before. And That's and it's what such I good yeah, what I now know is that he got me to think about my thinking, which is a process called metacognition. And he got me to step out of my thinking. And I realized that my thinking is a part of me, but it's not me. And when you can put it on the table and read it in front of you, you actually can make a really good decision. Mm. What was happening it's for a me? Bird's eye view almost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or in that, you know, the Adelaide Oval Grandstand, yeah. looking down on yourself. Yeah. And in that moment, I I actually got to separate from my negative thoughts, which I was really fused with. What will people think about me if I become a Paralympian? Will they like me? Um, Will I fit in? Because for 18 years I've been trying to do that. Mm. And can I tell you why? It sucked. It was so hard to try and fit in to be someone I wasn't and Mm. to try and prove to people I was good enough. I already was with Mm. who I was. I was worried about failing. I was worried about making a mistake. And being expert enough. And they're probably my top six, to be honest, and they keep coming up in my life. Mm. When I choose to, like I'm going to Tokyo um, to report with Channel 7. Now I've never done live TV. I'm really excited about it. But when they rang me to say, would you go to Tokyo to be on TV with us and report, of course I want to say yes. But then all of a sudden I'm going, am I expert enough? What happens if I make a mistake? (laughs) What happens if I fail? It's the imposter syndrome. What will people think of me? Will they like me? Will I fit in? They're my top six. Yeah. And then I go, thanks, mind. I know you're trying to protect me. Thank you. Like I like the fact that you are you care for me. You don't want to see me fail. You don't want to see me make a mistake. You don't want me to be um, rejected or have shame. I get that. And if I listened to that side of my thinking, then I wouldn't be here today. You'd never do I anything. would have gone back to Adelaide from Canberra. I would have protected myself, hidden my disability, gone back to play a pretty good level of netball and been unhappy, to be honest. Mm. I have this in, this inner drive in, in me that wants to unlock my potential and be as good as I choose to be. And so I'm so thankful for this moment because I know my thinking can, if I use this term disable, disable me. I don't mm. feel like my, my disability has much but my thinking can. And during these times of uncertainty, for many of us, we haven't really been taught about our thinking. Mm. You know, I, I would love there to be a subject at school called being human right from, you know, even from kindergarten all the way to year 12 where we're actually taught on a daily basis what it is to be a human. Yeah. And these things that we have to, you know, understand about ourselves. 
Um, and so now in this uncertainty, I have great skills in my toolkit that when my thinking can go to catastrophizing or, you know, I fall into some thinking traps that, you know, uh, with this, this pandemic can create some very interesting thinking in my own committee meetings. Mm. I'm sure others have had some very interesting thoughts and, and legitimate thoughts um, and factual but also made-up stuff that I can actually then go, is that really true? Is that not? What's the best decision to move forward with now? What are the opportunities and look at that list and weigh it up. And, you know, when I took the time to look at the opportunities back as an 18-year-old, when I said, okay, negative thoughts, we'll just set you there for now, something really special happened in that moment where when I looked at all of the positives, they were like represent your country, um, travel. I'd never been out of Australia before. I could potentially win a medal. I could be the best in the world. And suddenly something happened that I looked at it and went, actually, this is what I've come to the AIS for. Mm. Like, I come here to be my best. I come here to hopefully represent my country. Um, you know, my excellence value was there, you know, that opportunity to challenge myself. I realised that everything I'd come to the AIS for was here. Mm. It was packaged differently. Mm. What it's an amazing such an important learning, lesson. yeah, that if you know what your goals are, which are linked to your values, that if you anchor in them and you have clarity on them that, Packaging is so different and I love that mm. about life. So work hard on getting your, you know, your goals and values in place um, and then you can be flexible with the packaging because it doesn't matter. When you work, when you're values-led and purpose-led, context doesn't matter. Yeah. You take it everywhere you go. And for me in this, this last 18 months, it's been a gift because I anchor myself in that. It's like what do I want to be known for? What legacy do I want to leave during this time? What do I want people to say about me during this uncertainty yeah. how am I going to show up and where can that best be served and then you find some really amazing packaging which I call innovation and transformation it's I think it's such a powerful point because it's the this idea of control and having control over everything that we do really closes us off from having the opportunities to see what's actually hitting us in the face yes. you know and your your ability to um your ability to be able to open up and sort of cast a wider vision and a wider net and go, actually, this still hits my core. Yeah. It, it, that that is in a, in a skill set in itself is one that's very very underrated. <laughs> um, what can, I'm, I'm really interested in why do you feel that we are embarrassed about being different when we know or well, subconsciously know that being different. The people who are different are generally the ones who change the world, right? So why why is that? Why are we? Why do we want to always conform yet really admire those who are different? And yeah. it it just it throws me. Yeah, it's a, such a good question, and you know, one, going on my journey of of being able to develop skills. So if I take that forward to say from that point in time knowing how powerful psychologists were and as, mm. a, as a gold medalist I had a psychologist in my team the whole time and the main reason why for me was actually to help me again with those thoughts that weren't helpful. Yeah. I often say to people I don't need anyone to sabotage me because I do a very good job <laughs> of myself. Absolutely. And so I worked really hard with a psychologist on my own self-criticism and when that became too toxic that was you know, detrimental to my performance. Um, and so having 
I have now an incredible toolkit from a psychological point of view of to now know what my thinking does and when it's helpful and not helpful. And then I've got processes that I put into place to to not let those thoughts drive me in my life. Mm. Um, I think and then now at this point where I'm at, as you've said, I love that you've just said that, that once I've able to realise that my point of difference is my gift and that that is a journey that you have to go on as an individual. Mm. It, it took me time. It took me time to I had to go deep within myself and I had to learn self-acceptance and love and I had to do that with a skill set, a psychological skill set around my yeah. thinking. And so to come out the other end of that and my my most incredible gift as a Paralympian is that I learnt those skills. Mm. And the bit that really bothers me and really I feel is tragic that I do the work that I do now is that no one else offered me those skills from a psychological point of yeah. view to get the best out of myself, to perform at a gold medal level. No one else offered me those skills in life. Those skills that I learned to win gold with on the track were the exact skills I needed to actually, when I had conversations with myself that went something like this, oh, Katrina, you're stupid, you're broken, you're stupid right side, you know, you can't curl your toes, you're hopeless, people aren't going to like you, um, your right leg's thinner than your left, so don't wear shorts because then people know you're different. Like the, I have had, I can't even tell you how many conversations I've had with myself that have not been helpful around being different. And once someone gave me a toolkit of when I have thoughts on the track that say, oh, Katrina, you won gold in Atlanta but you've lost gold for eight years. You should only be happy with silver. You're getting older. That person next to you is better. Um, those thoughts that weren't helpful on the track to win gold, a psychologist helped me to learn processes of how to not let them, you know, drive my performance. Yeah. I could able just let them be and then focus on what I needed to. And then I went, oh, but I have those same conversations with myself around having a disability. Maybe I'll try the same skill set mm. and that was the gift that I then able was able to really learn to love. Is it the gift of choice? Is that yeah, really yeah? You? And to realize that, like you, everyone's looking for a point of difference, mm. right? In business, and little did I know that my point of difference that has escalated me onto a world stage. You know, I've got to share the speaking stage with Rich, Sir Richard Branson, with Jack Ma, mm. with Usain Bolt. What's I, I my heard, difference? I heard that they they say the same thing. You <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Oh, that's great. Thank you. But that is, it was my difference that I needed to unleash my difference to project my myself to the world. Mm. I couldn't have done that without the psychology skills that I learned from being a gold medalist. Mm. And that for me is amazing and that for me sucks because I didn't get offered those skills in life because I didn't hit rock, rock bottom. I mm. wasn't burnt out, worn out, stressed out, grieving or suffering trauma. Mm. And I know when I come up and I know still around psychology that psychology service are very much needed of course for when people hit those moments yeah I've met some amazing psychologists that are now preventative based that don't want to wait for people to get into the chair yeah that they want to help build someone's mental health and well-being so they while can perform well yeah, and I think there's been that lovely transition of psychology services that have made psychology more available to all of us and the work of Seligman and positive psychology. So I think going on, oh, this is a long answer to your question, is that as human beings we hide because, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to not fit in. If we look at our ev evolutionary psychology around being part of a tribe, mm. 
and wanting to survive, yep. we we conform and fit in and we do what we need to do necessarily to make sure that someone will want to love us and have sex with us so yep. that our human species yeah, can, continues in like its simple form. Can, yeah. And, you know, that's hard psychology to unwire, mm. right? And so once you realise, okay, then I've got a difference, what is driving, is it is my thinking driving to protect me like it was for me? Is that helpful to me? It wasn't. Was it helpful to others in society? No. Then what can I do about it and what tools can I put in my kit to help me, you know, love the fact that I have a difference? Mm. And until you have that, I can see why people, because I was that. Yeah, I, I think was it, that. I think there's a really important lesson from this, which is um, we all have the power of choice, right? We all have the power to decide what we are going to do and what we're not going to do. And, and I think if you really fundamentally uh, at the core can understand what your values are and where you want to be, like it's a, it's a hard lesson. It's, it's easy just to go, oh, yeah, just figure out what your values are and live to them. It, it's not that easy, right? It's a long-term self-discovery. But know at the core that when something feels good and when something yeah. doesn't feel good and go down those paths. Um, yeah. and, not, and fear shouldn't hold you back. Oh, it, it, absolutely. Can I add to also, Daniel, what was really clear for me in this situation of lived experience with this? And this is my story, of course, yeah. with mild cerebral palsies. This is how I felt that when I sat down with a psychologist and made that decision and then suddenly saw my goals and values there, mm. there was another question I asked myself, which is a very big question to ask yourself at 18. I remember sitting there thinking, why do I hate being different so much? And I asked myself that question was because I was already tired. I was actually exhausted mm. as an 18-year-old woman from, your, from hiding. From your self-talk. From, yeah, yeah from and from hiding. it, And the self-talk but also the hiding. I would have to plan and this is maybe where my good planning comes into place. <laughs> and this is what I really love to challenge people when they meet someone with a disability now to go, I wonder what great skills that they've developed that I don't. Instead of looking at someone with a disability going, well, where's their deficiency, you know, feeling sorry for them, I look at people with disability go, I wonder what strengths and skills that they've developed that others haven't. Mm. So for me, maybe my ability to forward plan is brilliant because when you're trying to hide something, I would be, okay, where am I going today? I've got to make sure I don't limp so then people will know there's nothing wrong with me. Maybe I'll wear those long pants because then no one will notice that my right leg's a bit thinner than my left. And when I have to balance in front of a group of people, I'll just – I won't show people, I'll just pretend that I balance to my right but I'll stay on my left again so no one sees. So mm. can you see I was already forward planning yeah. and if you asked me why I was limping in case I forgot not to limp, then I would have to tell you it was my knee and then I'd have to remember, Daniel, that you know that my knee's a problem so next time you check in I've got to remember that. Huh. Can you already see how exhausting yeah. that is? It's not and good. I remember asking myself this question, what am I doing this for because this sucks yeah. and I'm over it. Yeah. This isn't what I want to be known for and this is not a way to live. And if I become a Paralympian, I want to be an incredibly proud one. Like now at age 44 when I watched that Channel 4 video that you were talking about I have more pride than ever mm. about being a Paralympian mm. and if I become one I, I want to be so proud I don't I didn't know how to do it but I just knew that was in my core mm. and I knew it was right and I knew that if I could if I could do it 
what's deep in my core is I love to help people. And yes, values can be hard to find. However, if you actually start digging around and look at when you were a kid and what you loved doing and what made you feel good, when I go back to being a kid, I always loved helping people. Mm. I was babysitting kids from (laughs) the age of nine. I could have deep conversations with adults at age 10 who had Mm. suffered some major tragedy. Like I was really good at helping people. And so in that moment I went, you know, if I become a Paralympian, imagine if a young girl or boy who has cerebral palsy like me sees me in the future and then they can go, oh, she's just like me. Mm. I can be something awesome. Well, there, well, there is a story like that, isn't there? Can you share that? Yeah. Oh, look, there's there's two of my favourite stories that drive my work and um, I'll, <laughs> and I'll share the more recent one which is just a beautiful one. Um, I was training some wellbeing resilience skills on stage in Adelaide and there was a teacher in the audience. And when I train wellbeing resilience skills, people don't hear much about my story. I'm teaching skills. However, I have a bit of fun and share with people that I have cerebral palsy and do a few demos and Mm. it's a great way to warm up the audience. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) this one, a classification test. And there was a teacher in the audience on this particular day and in the break she came up to me and she said to me, Katrina, I have a young girl in my class who has cerebral palsy very similar to you. Um, She's in year two and at the moment, you know, she's struggling. She's going through that phase of of being different and, you know, having to wear her what's called an AFO. So some kids have to wear a night plaster, some actually have to wear them during the day, which makes it even more obvious that Mm. there's something different. Um, And she said to me, can you write her a little letter and I'll give it to her. Maybe it will give her that boost of motivation. And so in the break I didn't just write a little note, I wrote a three-page letter to this young girl and, and this teacher was extraordinary. She, on the weekend, she printed photos of me and she framed it in a big frame with my words and I actually said to the teacher, look, if, if it's okay and if the school's okay and her parents are okay, I would be really happy to come to her class and meet her and bring my medals and do a talk to the class and that's exactly what happened. And it was the most beautiful moment I've ever experienced. In fact, People often say to me, what does it feel like to win gold? I know what it feels like to win gold. I can tell you this moment when something like this happens is a feeling that surpasses gold. Mm. When you know you've contributed to that greater good of someone else, Mm. to see it in this young girl's eyes and um, the relationship that I have with the parents and what the parents have said to me, that how it's helped them Mm. to see difference and for young boys and girls to see disability in the community being successful. Mm. That's what that's what I do it for. Yeah. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. There is no greater feeling than seeing the boundaries of someone's thoughts being removed in, in like in front of your eyes. And I think that's what you've experienced in that moment. The the, the boundaries that this young girl thought she was going to live and abide by have now been removed and achievement is just based on what she decides to do. Absolutely. And we need to see more disability in Mm. the community. We need to see more success. There is incredible amounts of success um, that have come from people with disability. We need to see more of it. We need to see more on TV. One thing I loved about the Tokyo Olympics opening ceremony, I don't know if you noticed it, but there was people with disabilities in it. Mm. Um, Amazing. We need to see this in all areas of life because this is humanity. Um, and it needs to be celebrated more. We're getting there, um, but when you think about where we've come from, it's a long cultural change of mm. what disability looked like. You know, even when I was growing up, to have the spastic centre and crippled children's, I know they did important work. The name of them still upsets me to think that 
we had organisations that were called Crippled Children's Association. Mm. Imagine taking your child to Crippled yeah. Children's. You're like, automatically planting a seed in their head that they're different. Yeah, yeah. It's um, so it's exciting. It's exciting to see, and we we need to keep. Um, you know, making sure that, um, you know, disability is celebrated and, and, yeah. and that's a message that I'm really going strong on this year for people is is to see that difference is extraordinary and when you meet someone that has a difference, um, your natural psychology might go to, oh, poor them, they're missing a leg or they're in a wheelchair, I wonder how they, yeah. I, I want people to really challenge their own thinking and to think, well, wow, I wonder what skills they've got that the world needs that none of us have because of their difference. Can I ask you a question? It's, um, well, I'm going to ask it anyway, so I'm not going to ask you. <laughs> Don't ask my permission. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that's toyed with me for a while and I, I don't know what's correct, what's not correct, and it's a world that I live in. It's the grey area of it all, right? If there is someone with a wheelchair who is or with a, you know, a physical disability that is, is, is noticeable, and put it this way, if I'm walking down the street and there's a lot of able bodies around me, I'm not noticing. Someone who is physically um, disabled, mm. I notice. Mm. And then have an instant desire to help should they need it. Is that, is that person at that particular time, are they requiring help? Or are they, are they, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like this is where. Good, so, and it's a good question to ask. And I love that you're. You're putting it out there because um, I've experienced this a lot and and when I go to a Paralympic game, so I've competed at three and I have this amazing role of being a global ambassador for the International Paralympic Committee. In I would have been in Tokyo last year with working with them first and then because there's no hospitality and no people coming in, that role has now ceased. I worked in London with them and Rio with them and the two ambassadors I worked with, the first one, Chris Woodell from the USA, um, he is a summer and winter Paralympian and he is a, a, a person using a wheelchair. And so I spent so much time with him and um, we had these conversations all the time because when you look at me, you can't see my mm. disability. So sometimes they might think I'm his carer. This is <laughs> interesting and won't talk to him. Um, and then we were fascinated though when we would go places together, no one would offer me any help mm. and he would be offered help all of the time. Mm. And there was one particular situation where our car came to pick him up and this person wanted to help and it would come from, you know, the right place. Um, and he's like, let me help you into the car. He's like, no, 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 it's okay, I can do it. And he, he continued to want to offer help. And in the end Chris went, mate, I have my own car, I drive my own car, I even put my own wheelchair in the back of my car, I'm okay. And and we hopped in the car and I just I said to him, I commented to him, I'm I'm so respectful and have admiration for your ability to actually be calm with these mm. people and actually um, stay cool because I can tell you what, I'm already getting angry at yeah. how you're treated. And he said, yeah, look, I have my moments, but people want to do the right thing um, um, but I need to educate them as well. And so what I've learned, and this is how I work with people at a Paralympic Games, I don't help anyone at all. And it's a skill set that you've got to learn yeah. too. I'm a physio as well and so I don't help anyone at all um, unless someone asks okay. for it and that's my simple philosophy. Um, you can do more damage mm. 
not only to them trying to push their chair but even to their own. Um, So as someone that has spent hours and hours with different people with different disabilities um, and often people (laughs) who struggle, like I will do nothing um, until help is asked Mm. and it's amazing what you can can see and and learn from. Um, I also... I, I treat people like that as a physiotherapist and I, I do the same with my children as well. It's a, it's a really good skill set to, um, to wait for when people actually ask, ask for help. help yeah. And there's also a great book, I'm not sure if it's in your bookshelf, um, <laughs> called The Coaching Habit. Oh, yes. yes Have yes. you got Coaching Habit there? Think, it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's on that um, shelf but I've definitely listened to the, po- the audio yeah, book of it. Yeah, and his philosophy is a great TED talk mm. called How to Tame the Advice Monster mm. or even that Helping yeah. Monster. He's on a few podcasts as well. Yeah. Was he, on, he was on the Brene Brown podcast I believe. He, and yeah. I, what I love about his seven questions and it's mm. not until question five where you actually ask how – what what help would you you know what would you like me to help you with? Yeah, correct. Question five, mm. like yeah. that for me is fascinating. There's four other questions that you actually ask someone <laughs> before you actually you say, say "Can I help you?" But you don't even say "Can I help you?" You actually say, "What would you like me to help you with?" Yeah, well. and that for me is is such a wonderful model that as human beings we love to help, and that's a beautiful skill set. And I'm not saying we don't. Um, it's actually knowing when is the right, that is the skill set, yeah. is knowing when is the right time. Like if I'm treating a patient on a weekend, um, a lot of people that might not have my skill set can see that I might, they might think I'm mean. You know, someone's just had a knee replacement and I'm making them get out of bed the next day without my help. Yeah. And, of course, I'll help them if they yeah, yeah. really struggle. I want to see what people can do and yeah. I'll say to people, look, I'm here. I want to see what you can do. Yeah. And then you let me know when you need help is different than me trying to grab their leg and whiz them out. And I often say to people, I want you to do it first because if you, if, you, if you get hurt, then you can blame yourself and not yeah. me. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's, it is a really important point because there's this um, desire for wanting and especially if you think about kids, like your own children, this desire to want the best for them, therefore you want to help, therefore you, you do help and you end up doing it for them, right? And so you actually... It actually falls apart. I, I never forget there was this book that I read. Uh, oh, I cannot remember the name. It was similar to that. It was almost like a spin-off of Carol Dweck's mindset. It's about the you know the um, the um, positive mindset, mm-hmm. um, growth mindset, growth mindset. And, and, and fixed mindset. And there was a, a the author. She has a, a, a teenager uh, son, and he was uh, working on this math assignment the whole weekend. Right, math assignments due Monday. Working on it the whole weekend, put hours and hours and hours, and she was proud, like really proud. You know, my my son's doing everything, and he's not a real academic. You know, so this was actually something quite big for him. And um, Monday morning comes, he gets on the bus and goes to school, and um, the mother sees that he left the math homework on the on the table. And so she puts this post up on Facebook and says, what do I do? Do I take the math homework to knowing all this effort that he's put in over the weekend or do I see what happens? And um, the the story, uh, the way it goes was everyone on the Facebook was, was a split decision. As it was, she said, right, I'm going to just see what happens. I'm not going to take it to school. I'm not going to get him out of the shit, right? And he comes home that night and she's like really just like really nervous about what had happened because it was this big assignment and whatnot. And he comes home and he sees the math homework on the table. He goes, oh, shit, there's my math homework. 
And she was like, oh, okay, I was expecting a different reaction, like freaking out. And he goes, he goes, and she said, what happened today? He goes, well, I went to school and I went to take the math homework to hand it out to the math teacher and I didn't have it. So I said to him, I said to him, hey, I've done my math homework. I know all about it. This is what I did. This is the way I did it. Am I able to hand it up tomorrow? And the math teacher said, yeah, well, you've clearly done it because I can hear by the way you're speaking. Yeah, just bring it in tomorrow. No problems. So in that moment, the boy learned negotiation skills, right? And a skill that he wouldn't have otherwise learned if the mother had taken him and get out. So I think it's just a really important point that 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 coaching habit of letting people make mistakes, letting them fail, letting them fall over. You don't want to see anyone get hurt or injured, but letting them – even if they are hurt, that, that's where the resilience piece oh. comes in, right? They are um, they, they, just another building block for yeah, them. Yeah, well, that's it. And, and, and what I do know is, yes, we teach resilience skills and we, we teach evidence-based resilience skills. Mm. And I also do know that um, you want people to fall. <laughs> you want people yeah. to. I can tell you from the moments when I failed, mm. um, like in Sydney, I you know I won gold in Atlanta and I was going to win you know of course you win gold you want to back it up and in Sydney I won two silver and a bronze and I felt like I'd failed Mm. because I didn't run any personal best in Sydney now that sucks Mm. like you spend four years between games I mean these games have been five like four years you get a degree in four years and you land in an event the biggest event that you've been training for and you don't personal best like that for me was a really hard moment and 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 I yes I was grateful to win silver and bronze when I'm totally honest with people I actually came home and and spent more time with my psychologist again unpacking it because I felt like I'd failed Mm. and I will say in that moment though of unpacking something and it's so important then when you do fail or you have that crisis moment that you take the time to reflect and you go and talk to somebody mm. and and get asked really good questions when there's no there's no time on this we all we all go through crisis points and they can be really small to our computer um you know yeah. having a virus to then something bigger like me failing at, at a world stage event to to other things but the time you know it takes people different amount of time to get through things but when i sat down with this psychologist she asked me some incredible questions that actually defined my next four years of my life, mm. which helped me to get back to a gold medal level, yeah. which was extraordinary. And I don't know if I would have. I honestly don't know if I would have learnt those lessons. Mm. One of my biggest learnings from that, Daniel, is when I've told you I love to help people. I love helping people. It's a, it's a very good strength of mine. I can do it really well. I know that. Every strength of ours... Um, underplayed or overplayed becomes our weakness Mm. and I was overplaying helping people I hadn't been taught how to put boundaries in place I didn't even know what that looked like Uh, I have another great value of when I say yes to something I don't bail out Mm. it's a part of why I won gold so if you ask me to do this podcast it would take a lot for me to not be here if I say yes I'll deliver Mm. and so then I was saying yes to helping people and so I'm staying true to my integrity but I didn't have any boundaries so what happened in Sydney is I had said yes to every opportunity that come my way that there was no way I could run a personal best in Sydney and my psychologist asked me this question she said are you happy with being at a silver medal level there's nothing wrong with it 
if you're happy with silver, then keep doing things like you're doing. And she said, I know that you're not because we wouldn't. wouldn't (laughs) So if you want to get back to a gold medal level, and gold medal level for me is about excellence. Mm. You know, it's excellence in business. It's excellence in my family unit. It's about how do I bring my best self Mm. to whatever that context is. If, If you want to get back to that, she said, you need to make some significant changes. And that moment gave me so much clarity. My clarity in that was I then had to come home and write down a list of everything that I'd said yes to. I had to learn how to say no, how to learn to say no. And for me it was how do I need to say, because I struggled with saying no. I don't know, there's probably lots of people that. I'm in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. And I hadn't found a way to say no that suited my personality yeah. and how I explain that is I, I can say no with love now. Mm. Like for me I've found ways to say to what people. What does that look like? What does that look like for me? It'll be um, instead of an outright no, I can't do that, it'll be look, you know, I've, for instance, last week I got asked to sit on another board and my answer was very clearly, look, I love what you do. I really, you know, you do great work in the community. I have just joined this board and this board and I know I'm at full capacity right now mm. so I will say no to you know yeah. to this opportunity keep doing great work and if an opportunity arises in the future where my timing is is available yeah. I would love to f- talk further yeah. and I might even say however I know that so and so is looking for an opportunity like yeah. this so I'm really clear I I, I know that I've worked out how to measure my capacity yeah. that I can function. Well, you've set at the your level. own boundaries, right? My boundaries, That's it. and I might want if I really want to say yes to that one because that might have been a board that I've been wanting to be on forever. Mm. Then I know that then I've got to look at my the other commitment. Yeah, and we yeah, and um, and it, it might be that someone asks me to do something, and I'll say I really love working with you. I love what you do. I don't have the time right now. Yeah. There's another, there's a podcast, yeah. the, Tim, the Tim Ferriss show. Have you ever heard of the Tim um, Ferriss? Yeah, yeah, I have, yes. So he's one of the more more, more popular podcasts. Yes. But he has a, a rule <laughs> and I, I'm not going to say the expletive but it's it's if to decide whether you want to do something or not, it's either a F yeah or it's a no, <laughs> yeah, right? That's great. So yeah. you've actually got to be fully invested or it's a no. Yes. Right? And, that, and yeah. that's it. So it's, and if it's fully invested, what does that look like? Yeah. Because that's you know you want to say if you want to say an excellent yes and know that you can deliver. Yeah, correct. And so if you're going to say yes to something, well, what else does that look like? Um, and when you do say no, and actually for some people, even saying no out loud can be the first step. Mm. Because if you're someone that loves to please people, and you know, for me, it was really linked to I've got to show people that I'm good enough. Um, yes, I do love helping people, but it was also around. Yeah, making sure people knew that I was capable yeah. um, and so learning to say and it has been a powerful gift of mine. What I also try and do is even if it's going to be an F year, I wait 24 hours yeah, because right. I go and talk to my team, my family um, and, you know, when I had this role that came up with going to Tokyo, um, I said, I'll get back to you. Of course I want to say yes, but I did say to the producer, I said to her, I'll get back to you. Yes. How long have I got? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I had to speak. It's a month away. When I go to Tokyo, I am gone for a whole month. It will be two weeks in quarantine. I mean, you know, so it's yeah. – and I, I had to speak to my, you know, my husband and my kids and um, and to make sure that, you know, what – is everyone on board with this because yeah. it's not just about what I want to do. And, yeah. of course, my husband was fantastic. He's like – of course, you know, we didn't have to have a decision yeah, about it. He said, just, we've got your back. Yeah. Yeah, which is beautiful. Amazing. Yeah. 
There's a, there's, a whole, there's a bit to unpack in that and one thing I will say is I going back to the psychology point of view and you mentioned it earlier about currently we're looking about how do we stop and instead of getting to the point where there is burnout or stress and all this sort of yeah. stuff, how do we? Yeah. So I, I am one of those people. I've, I actually speak to someone which Good. is um, – and to me it was never about I'm at a point that I need to speak to someone other than the simple fact of I've just got – you know, if you can drop a piece of string and it just bunch, bunches up on the ground, I just almost feel like that's talking about it will help me just pick the tip of the string up and it just unwinds, right? And so that's really how I thought. And I thought this person, they may or may not help me when I speak to them, but really what it's going to do is just allow me to talk and get whatever's off my chest. And mm-hmm. I, I, the, when I walk out of that room, I'm on top of the world yeah. purely because I've just gone blah. Because I'm in a position similar to yourself where you don't really have too many people to speak to and, and let it all out on and and, um, and and you've got to almost keep this image about you, this clean-cut image. And so when you get into that room without someone, you can just go, oh, this is what's happening so to me. So good. And those yeah. questions yeah. that they ask are really, you kind of actually I haven't even thought about it that way. That's a good, that's a really good different perspective on, on what so I do encourage great, most Daniel. people yeah. to to do that absolutely and and yes find someone and I also will say there are so many good resources out there we yes. are living in the information age you mm. know there are so many wonderful TED talks there's so many great books um, you know one of my favorite books that really helped me to in fact I asked one of my friends who is a psychologist the same question you asked me before mm. why did I hide like why do human beings hide? And she said to me, she answered it. I was writing a blog at the time and she wrote something around it. And then she said to me, go and read The Happiness Trap mm. um, by Dr. Russ Harris. Harris and yeah. I, I probably read that 12 or 13 years ago. And I read it and I just went, oh, this is exactly me. This is what I've done. I'm mm. a human and this is why. And it was such a wonderful book that I highly recommend mm. People, if they haven't read that one, um, and then I loved it that much that I went and did his training and now in the wellbeing and resilience programs that I run, they've actually got psychological flexibility as a key component of the programs. And, in fact, the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, I'm a part of a program that they run that is connecting gold medalists with potential gold medalists and the framework that our psychologists um, have chosen to work from from a national perspective is using the same work as, um, you know, ACT, which is acceptance, commitment therapy, and how do you learn to become psychologically flexible? And it's such a a wonderful skill set that I know has really helped me to find and unlock my potential um, and accept my difference. Mm. That's so good. So I want to um, skip to your, you know, there's so much I've got. I've got so many questions, but it's just I'm trying to. I'm really conscious of your time too. So, you have spoken in a TEDx talk, right? So I want to ask about that, but I also want to ask about the Kokoda Track and the Mount Everest Base Camp. It seems like you just keep throwing yourself into difficult situations. Yeah. <laughs> Can you? Um, yeah. And, and yes, not, I not, do. And not just yes, once with course. the uh, Everest. Base, it was base camp. Twice. Yeah. And, uh, which they're, they're on, all three of those items are on my bucket list that you've done. Oh. So. <laughs> and, in, and in lockdown last year, I took 120 people to the top of Everest virtually because my team in Nepal um, could earn no money. And, you know, I remember being on JobKeeper and, you know, still being able to earn money and thinking, how do I keep my team employed Mm. in Nepal? So um, there's 120 people around Australia and the world, in fact. We did it virtually and took people to the top of Mount Everest, which was so much fun. Um, You're right. One of my values is adventure. Um, I like to 
to advent, you know, to try new things and to be adventurous. I know a part of good well-being, mental health and well-being is doing hard stuff mm-hmm. and challenging yourself and getting out of your comfort zone because I know when I get out of my comfort zone, that's when my protective thoughts turn up a lot more mm. and it gives me a chance to to be able to practice put my skills into place I know where most of my magic that's happened in my life is way out of my comfort zone so I need to get out of it a lot more often to be able to you know if I choose to walk Coda or choose to do base camp Everest it is out of my comfort zone and then it allows me to practice those moments for them when there is a TEDx opportunity or a big business opportunity um, or when I get asked to do something on channel seven which scares me still but and I know that I can I can do it. it. Um, So I love a challenge. And because I'm not an athlete anymore, I know that's a part of me that I I don't go and compete in track and field on weekends. I've done enough sport. I'm not interested at all in competing. I don't want to run a personal best ever again. (laughs) (laughs) However, I love to – that athlete in me still wants to be challenged. Um, About two months ago, probably a bit longer, I ran 24 kilometres without much training at all and that I'm not suggesting people to do this at all. I do exercise. Um, Normally if I was going to run a half marathon, I would prepare properly for it. Mm. I didn't do it to run a half marathon. I did it. It was trail running that my brother-in-law organised. I did it for my mental fitness. Mm because I knew I wasn't physically prepared yeah. and I didn't care if I walk and ran. I wanted to test how I managed it mentally. Was I going to give up? Was I going to walk away? When I got when it got really hard, what was my mental fitness going to do? Mm. Um, and so other people would go, that sounds really stupid. I'd never do that, Katrina, yet yeah. that's what I know that will help it, me to. And this comes back to the sports psychology <laughs> yeah. thing that I'm talking about. It, it, I really believe that you – and I, I don't know what it is because people – I've just ran my first half marathon not long ago and it took me six months to prepare for that. So well just, done. Let's, Good. Let's be, let's be very, <laughs> but I still couldn't walk for a week after. But <laughs> the, I'm driven by the pain that is associated with it. Like there is nothing – everyone – I actually love going out and running in the rain, in the hail, when the when it's blowing a gate. Like I, because I just feel like, well, no one else is doing this. Same. And yeah. you're alive. Yeah. I, I, I know. And yeah. I know that that's some people have that and others not. Yeah. And I completely respect yeah. that. Um, yeah, though, I, I love I love a challenge. Mm. Uh, I love to move my body. And also, um, I've seen enough. I've seen plenty to know that tomorrow my body might not move. Mm. Yeah. And I'm serious about this. Yeah. If, you know, if you have a body that moves, move it. And until it's taken away from you, you wish you did life. I don't want yeah. to live tomorrow wishing. I want to live today knowing that if I die tomorrow or something happens to me tomorrow, I, I, I'm I, okay with it, if mm. that makes sense. No um, I, I do normally spend a lot of time in Nepal. I normally would spend five weeks a year in Nepal and it's the gift that that's given to me over the last six years is is to help me find a thing I call spiritual literacy Um I, I didn't have it. I think I've always had it um, and going to Nepal for the last six, seven years has really helped me define what spiritual literacy is for me because most people, if they do a values and action survey, spirituality comes 24 for them. Most people say I'm not spiritual. In fact, for me it's my most important thing and it's not based in religion. And, mm. in fact, I said I didn't have it for a long time because I didn't belong to a church or wasn't a part of a religious faith. 
yet I'm deeply spiritual. Mm. And so to navigate my spiritual literacy, which is an incredible part of my mental health and well-being, you know, my spirituality exists in connection with nature, you know, climbing mountains, yeah. getting into the jungle is part of my spiritual yeah. uh, literacy, um, living according to my values and on purpose, contributing to others and helping others for the greater good is 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 my spiritual literacy. Mm. Um, and it's a really important part of, of my day-to-day and, and really uh, I do know particularly around when you're purpose-led, there's research coming out now that purpose is one of the things that can really strongly contribute to your mental health and well-being. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, yeah. yeah we're going to see a lot more around it soon. So, um, yeah, it's um, – and I, I in Nepal I tap into – the Buddhist philosophy, I have mm-hmm. um, a great Buddhist teacher across there who's uh, a Rinpoche, which means he's like a master and you've yeah. got a PhD in Buddhism and being present and being in the moment. And the amount I've learned from him around teaching me and, again, with all these wonderful books and teachers and TEDx talks out there that we don't have – I think we've been living in this illusion of things are certain mm. and I never have because I've – been a Paralympian, I've seen things happen to people. I've worked in hospitals as a physio and I've seen tragedy happen to people. I know that life's uncertain Mm. and I think for a long time we've been living in this comfortable position that life is certain. It never has been. And so my personal philosophy is if I can build my inner strength and resources and tools and work on them as much as I can, that I can feel confident today that whatever happens tomorrow that I've you know, I've been building enough to be able to get through whatever happens tomorrow. Yeah. And there's a peace in that. There is, without doubt. Without, yeah, it's, um, and I'm really thankful for for, for all of those learnings um, cross-culturally, um, yeah, well, across the oceans. Well, from... We're thanking you for sharing <laughs> that with us. So, um, but put me on the list for base camp, by the way. If there's, if you've, yes, uh, we I'm have on. another one coming yeah. when we can travel again. Yeah, um, I'm on, yeah. I'm in. <laughs> Yeah, get time off work, but I'm in. Um, <laughs> while we, I, I want to jump into while we're talking about putting yourself in silly and difficult situations, you've gone and started your own two two businesses. We've got Silver to Gold and New Day, two both amazing businesses. Silver to Gold works with companies in the uh, in the mental health and wellbeing space, and New Day Leadership is uh, a fantastic event and does so much for the community. You must you must have this desire to wanting to put yourself in situations that I mean especially what's happened with New Day in the past couple of years with and recently you had 600 odd people in the last minute could have potentially been shut down you got through this constant feeling of of you know that sick feeling that you get in your stomach when things just are so uncertain yeah you must have that consistently yeah yeah Yeah. and and I suppose I've just answered the question well, to be able to do that yeah. is is if you work on those inner resources and your your skill set. Um, and I know when we're delivering resilience training, we have images of um, boats. Like if you're sailing in a small boat in the oceans, nice and calm, then you feel resilient, right? Mm. I, I don't know if I would if a sailor because I don't know how to sail, but yeah. let's say we know how to sail. Yeah. But then the weather gets choppy and the ocean gets more. And so it's we talk about your preparation for the storm versus the storm severity. So your resilience starts to change based on how much preparation you've done and mm. how severe the storm is. And if it's an ocean that is, you know, incredible waves and you've got a small boat, then you're not going to be very resilient because you, you just 
not going to be prepared for that. Yeah. Imagine if you could build a really big boat. Yeah. So I love that philosophy of I'm trying to build myself a really big boat yeah, to weather the storms boat. of life because yeah. I know tomorrow there will be a storm that I didn't expect coming. Um, so, yeah, look, running two businesses has – it's amazing. I, you know, I went through school. I was ducks of my high school again because I work hard and I was trying to prove to people that I'm good enough. And, you know, there's some good things that come out of that. And when you do well at school, you go into in my era anyway, I'm 44, you become a lawyer or a doctor yeah. or a physio or there wasn't many choice back mm-hmm. then, um, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was. Some no, no. people went to business and commerce. Um, However, I am really creative and my creativity was encapsulated through sport and then when I stopped doing sport, I realised that my creativity that happened on the field had to go other places. Um, And to be an entrepreneur now to have two businesses, I love, I love, I think, also being an athlete that was from a sport that was an individual sport. I feel like that happens, you know, when you work for yourself, you're responsible for all of your your success as well and failures. Um, and so one of the things that did lead me to being self-employed, though, was when I was an athlete, I was mentored um, by a fabulous man in South Australia called Mark Cahoon. And that came while well, I was a part of Sassy. Sassy were trying to also look after us and gave us really good mentors. And I remember Mark saying to me, Katrina, you have a unique opportunity as an athlete a very small window to be able to set yourself up for the long term. I mean, I was at uni studying to be a physio, so I yeah. thought I had a career yeah, ahead. Yeah. I did the right thing. He said, you, he said, I've seen so many athletes not do this well, mm. that when they retire, they have nothing. Yeah. And so in that five years I spent with him, he taught me a lot, an incredible amount about business. I learned all of my business acumen, not from university, but from being mentored by mm. a business so person. Powerful. He taught me how to build relationships. He taught me as an athlete that was a Paralympian who was trying to get support and sponsorships how to be unique and how to build that value proposition mm. to, to establish, you know, really good successful business. Yeah. Um, and so he he I got a business name, I got an ABN. This was in 2000. Mm. Like this is 21 years ago. Yeah, wow. And I was in third year physio. Yeah. And I have had a business going since, so for 21 years. And as the times progressed, I've gone to being full-time and then developed New Day. Um, So I've loved doing the consultancy work as Katrina Webb around, you know, high-performance solutions, wellbeing solutions, a lot in the leadership space as well, um, particularly with women, which has been amazing, and a lot around diversity inclusion. And then there was a part of me that, um, again, I, I wanted to create a product that didn't have me in it. And I and people that are business owners or have their own brand to know that I know what my value set is. If I, and this is this is the conversation I had with myself, and I'm very open to talk about if I die tomorrow, Katrina Webb and my business ceases. Yeah. If I'm living through purpose and legacy, how can I create something that doesn't need me to be in it? Yep. Can I create a brand that is really what I care about, values, and get a collective of people that have similar values together that we could do something for the greater good? And that's where New Day was birthed, is around um, creating a platform around inspired leadership for the greater good, you know, for people in the planet. And um, we birthed, you know, it was birthed in uh, five five years ago, um, and it was myself and my father as my support team, and. And we, we put on an event around, you know, looking at leadership and leadership for the greater good. Mm. And, and what drove me behind that as well was, yes, creating a, a brand that was not me on stage at all. My first 
if people come to New Days, I really don't even go on stage. It's it's not about my brand. It's yep. about finding great people to share. You've great got a pretty stories. good MC. Yeah, that's right. In, in yeah, Matt, that's a, right. Found a, a good MC. Yeah. <laughs> but I also I also came from a lot of conferences where people would often say to me, "You were the highlight of the day. The rest of the conference was boring." Like conferences don't need to be boring. They mm. can they they. You know, your people's energy is your responsibility. So at New Day, we have massage. We we try and think of all different elements to keep people engaged. It's a bit more of like a, a festival in a sense. Um, and I also know that my dad has been a part of Rotary for a long time, mm. and I I have this feeling that through my generation, service clubs aren't um, that popular anymore, mm. um, which is about doing good. Yep. Um, and I also know that, um, you know, religion has been around doing good. And I love that about religion, about serving others and doing good. Um, and not everyone is part of a religion, mm. you know, a church or a religious oh, faith. It, it's declining. Declining. So I thought, well, you know, workplaces do this well with CRS, you know, their corporate social responsibility strategies. And I do know that humans at our core want to do good. So how could we create an event and then a platform that shares stories about, you know, helping others and 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 doing good? And we've we've found a really lovely spot in the marketplace mm. that we have not for profits come, we have, you know, corporates come, we have governments, we have individuals that really care. Um, and that's just been a wonderful thing, mm. to be honest. That, you know, if I if I die tomorrow and I could, that you I've really tried to encapsulate what I've learned in life and how we can pass that baton on to other people to, yeah, to, no doubt. to take Well, that's the role with. of all entrepreneurs, isn't it? It, it? Well, not the role of all. It, it, it's a key goal for people who want to build something sustainable. Yeah. You know, if, they're, if they are purpose-led and they're driven about um, yeah. changing the world or, or changing people in, in their community or, or, or helping people or adding value in some way, shape or form, then... Building a sustainable business is the option, right? Because it can't just rely on you. Because a, that's going to wear you out, and then you're not going to be passionate about it. But if you can help others and bring bring together a team Absolutely. and a community, and all yeah. of a sudden, you know, your community every year I see it is expanding. Um, so it's an amazing product, yeah. and it's got. living and it's living condition free. And you mentioned it earlier on around when we condition ourselves and we want to control everything. Mm. If if that's you and your personality, I'm sure you would have found this last 18 months very difficult. Mm. And I know well, one that, of, uh, that is me. <laughs> that's why I and, know about it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and look, I, I like to have things. In, like it doesn't mean you don't organise yeah. things, you don't have a plan. Um, I often speak to groups about this and I've learned and I also learned from people that do it really well and, and having three sons and working, you know, with my husband and a team, I've also watched him and learned from him in a in a, a wonderful way of what he does well. And and when I run leadership programs, particularly particularly for women, we often talk about this. And so I normally would travel, you know, five weeks a year, which mm. is a long time to be yeah. away from home. And I love it. Mm. Like I love my kids and my husband. And I also love Katrina Webb going abroad yeah. and doing what I do over yeah. there. And my husband has travelled a lot and I would watch him when he would travel. He would pack his bag and he would go by and I would go by and he would have a great trip. He'd come home. I'd say hi and he'd say hi and we'd, you know, hear yeah. all about it. Yeah. And he never put food, never cooked meals for us. He never organised babysitting. He knew that I had it all under control um, and I never resented him travelling and he had a great trip and I'd come back and, and it was great. And I thought, okay, 
I'm going to learn from that because he wasn't even carrying any guilt about leaving. And he really helped me. Um, So when I go now, I go pack my bag and I go, bye. (laughs) He goes, bye. And it all gets figured out. Mm. And, um, And what I say from that is the more conditions I place on myself and my environments um the harder it is to be able to do things and so surrendering control in those spaces has really helped not only me to to do the things that I love it's also helped you know my family and there's things now that happen in my family that I wasn't even that good at that my husband was that we've kept those things in place and that happens in workplaces as well it's the same with new day the more I can let go the more amazing ideas come into it and the more opportunity yeah. to grow. It's so powerful. It is powerful, think, isn't it? Going back to your point before, and I'll paraphrase, is that your greatest strength is also your biggest kryptonite, right? That it, I, I feel like that in itself is the control element for me. Well, one of my greatest strengths is similar to yours, being able to read the play. I can see three or four steps ahead. But then it's also I've got this cog in my head that, just spins practicality. This is the way it should run because it makes the most sense. But knowing that the world doesn't revolve that way, it's something that I always get caught up in. It's yes. like, it just makes sense for it to be that. Why has this happened? And it's not till I sort of do step back, take myself away from the situation, give myself 24 hours or whatever it might be. I might freak out for that first 24 hours. But then I look back and that's when I recreate this, this, the, the Bs, the Cs, the Ds yes. and the Es. And yes. it's a skill set that... I'm working on that, you know, how do I control that first 24 hours and not get that sick feeling and not get that anxiety creep in and not get that feeling of wanting to control all the time. It's a a constant fight. It's a constant battle but... And it's a, it's a great battle and I, in terms of when you talk about leadership and, Mm. and even personal development, one of the great things I've learned is when you know your strengths and that's a great strength of yours, when we're looking at developing our teams and our, um, you know, organisations or even our family units is we, we have wonderful strengths and often they're, they're overplayed. Mm. So if we're looking for development opportunities, it's actually going, well, that's a really great strength of yours, Daniel. How do we get that balance between overplaying and underplaying it right? Yeah. Um, instead of looking at weaknesses to develop, actually let's look at where our strengths of maybe, you know, every strength of ours taken to an extreme actually becomes our weaknesses. So I love to help people look at what they do really well and then help them to put those checks and balances. Mm. Just like I said around I'm great at helping people but to an extreme it, I underperform and help no one. Yeah. So what, what do those boundaries or those checks and balances look like? Um, what boundaries do we need to put into place that can really help to bring our strengths okay. to the forefront most is that so going into the mm. the work that you do with with, with companies and yeah. the mental health well-being yeah. what are some of the biggest or more what are some of the the trends that you're seeing right now in the mm. current world with leadership yeah. and, and the way we are working on because look there's yeah. resilience programs, right? Yeah. And you and I have talked about this offline that you can you can have a resilience program and it's not just a checkbox. It's not just a half-day workshop and all of a sudden, yeah, people are resilient because they've done a half-day. Like it doesn't work that way. Yeah. How do yeah. you build resilience within yes. the company? How do you yeah. concentrate solely on their mental health and well-being? What, mm. what are some of the tips and tricks that you can provide us? Should, yeah. I don't want to give away all your no, secrets. Well, there, but no, there's a, there's a couple of trends, in, you know, and where a lot of my work is coming from now is – I've called it for a long time self-leadership and um, and if if leadership simply for me is around unlocking potential, if, we're, if I look at the simplest form of leadership, it's actually about unlocking other people's potential mm-hmm. and, of course, 
within that, yeah. the strategy of running. Yeah. Um, yeah, and often we skip the step of unlocking our own mm. Yeah. And we go to help everyone else. And my strong question to people is if you haven't done that work on yourself, then people see through it. And and if you haven't done that work on the hard stories of your life, there'll be a moment that triggers you in leadership that you'll need to unpack it yeah. anyway. Um, I love a book called True North by Bill George. Yeah, um, from Yeah. It's and I, I love when he talks <laughs> about crucibles in our life. And, mm. and for me who's had this story and, and I've been working this space for 21 years to read Bill's book and to know this is what they teach in Harvard and for him to have all those case studies in there that talk about leaders, you know, CEOs of large companies that haven't dealt with their hard moments in their mm. life they've put it under the carpet I'll, yeah. un, I'll like other people's un, I'll spend time helping other people unlock their potential but I won't yeah. do mine because that's hard yeah that's right like I tell you what the hard stuff people call this soft skills I would love to recall them the hard skills because the hardest skills is to go within mm. and to look at your own stories and your own moments where things were hard and and what you know Bill talks about in his book he calls them crucibles and I love that because it's that that medieval vessel it was a crucible that you would melt down things um, and transform them and Mm. he talks about that when we have these moments of you know hardship or crisis that if we can transform out of them what he does know from his research is that's where extraordinary leaders are created Um, so I love to talk about and 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 teach a concept of self-leadership and work with teams and leaders around going back and looking at your own foundations and combining that with well-being and resilience and also high performance coming from you know a gold medalist who is also a physiotherapist so that's where my specialty lies um so self-leadership leading yourself first for then the greater good of other people um well-being leadership is another term that um we have never heard but i'm seeing it more come in this trend around what well-being leadership have you got in your organization and like you said it's it's actually putting a program in place that creates behavior change so i've um i was the first trainer um first person that got trained in south australia um beyond the actual team of be Well Co. Yeah. So out of Samri, they've got a program called the Be Well Plan, yeah. um, and I've I've got a license, and I'm a trainer of that program. Why did I buy into that program? Why do I facilitate that now? Because it's a there's a, there's a quite a few models of it, but the core model is that it's a two hour program five weeks in a row so you have a group for two hours each week and you Mm -hmm. teach skills there's a lot of reflection in it there's a lot of um excellent frameworks that have really strong evidence so the be well plan programs they spent three years developing it by looking at um 429 different interventions that Mm -hmm. contribute to mental health and well-being and then looked at the ones with the strongest evidence Um, So it's a program that goes for five weeks. I love then it has masterclasses. So we know that behaviour change takes time and you're like you're running your half marathon. It took six months. Mm. If, If people don't have any mental health and wellbeing strategies in it, we give them the ones with the strongest evidence and then we teach a program actually over a year. We come back and do masterclasses. And one of the reasons why I love this program as well is because as a physiotherapist, if you came to me with a sore knee and then someone else came to me with a sore knee and I didn't even check your knee, I just went, here you go, here's knee exercises, go off and do them, you'll get better. I know you won't. So in mental health and wellbeing, similar, what the Be Well program has done has put in 30 different activities that have evidence around them in terms of building mental health and well-being and resilience mm-hmm. and you get to try them and test them and if you don't like them you don't you pick the ones that work for you 
and it's precision based. Yeah. And I love that because as an allied health worker, it is about precision. Yeah. It's not about coming in and going, okay, I'll teach that skill to all of my organisation. You're resilient now, off you go. And then I've heard a few things on the grapevine that when people break down, people are saying, oh, they're not resilient enough. They're not oh. good enough to be here. We've got to get rid of them. Like this takes time yeah, and it's got crazy. to come at and a core. And everyone's starting a, at a different point, right? Yeah, yes. Um, so there are, there's amazing organisations that are taking But the people on. are saying they're not resilient enough. The, my response back to them is you're not self-aware. And I, what, what, yeah, what are you I doing? Like, why would well, who, yeah, and when you put the mirror up, you know what? Yeah. One of my Buddhist teachers, I love this and I'm sure you've heard it before, but when you go to point your finger at someone and to have a go at them or blame them, there's three pointing back at you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, And you can that. see that right mm. now. So when I go to – at anyone, if I go to have a go at someone, I go, oh, what is this reflecting in me that I don't like about myself mm. or I haven't got happening in my own life? So if someone says that about someone else, often if you ask, well, what are your – what tools that have you got in your kit that are evidence-based that you regularly practice as habits, they, yeah. they probably don't have too many. They don't. It, it, it does – That we are living in a world where technically – Great people have been put into leadership roles um, the, and there's a lot of work there. There's a lot of ego floating around at the moment as well. Uh, there's the the, uh, the shortage of, well, there's no shortage of jobs, I think. There's a lot of, there's the, actually really difficult to try to get people. So people are stepping on people. There's a lot of play in the market at the moment. So we're seeing it come from all, not, not only from the world of the pandemic where the, the, the unknown of what's happening, yes. but it's also... There's this, uh, there's this skills grab at the moment and desire to reach the top quicker now because I can. It's almost like the housing industry, right? The, the, the prices are going up. The, the pay for the, some of these roles are going up. It's the same thing. We're seeing it across the board. So yes. it's just a crazy old world at the moment that we're trying to yeah, navigate our way through. It is. And, I mean, within that, if you haven't got great leadership skills, it, it's, it can't, you can't hide that. No. And I think karma in itself comes around that people move on quickly. Yeah. Um, um, it's something that you might be able to um, fake for a while um, and get places for a while. But what we do know is that, you know, um, good leaders um, and good leadership, um, people can see can see through it. Yeah. It's something you, can, you, know, you can't Well, the numbers hide. are there. Just look yeah. at your staff turnover. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> it's a, yeah. Like people are going to leave because there's opportunities. And, yes, as leaders we should help grow people so they have opportunities elsewhere and they can create more impact in other organisations. No problems. But when your turnover is just consistent purely because of bad leadership or that's right. let's call it management, then, um, yeah, then that's when the problem is. That's it. Look, we are we are well past probably the time where we should be. I don't even know where about an hour and a half. It's <laughs> where, where, yeah, an hour and four. So we've, we're, we're – I won't keep you too much longer, but we do have we do finish off the show with or actually first we finish off the show with quick five questions. But before we go into that, what does the future look like for Katrina Webb? I don't know. Mm. Yeah, you haven't um, got any. What, what's your next? You get you know get more it's into a, commentary. Now yeah, that you're going into well, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I, I, um, I simply look at life in terms of you know, really having clarity on what I want to be known for. Um, am I putting those values into action and um, contributing from that purpose-led? And, and as long as I'm anchored in purpose and values, um, what I do know is when I do that well, 
amazing opportunities come yeah, up. But- and I, I'm not bothered by that. When I – it's happened to me consistently, mm. um, consistently uh, since I've won gold medals, you know, I've had opportunities to speak at the UN. Um, I've had opportunities, like I said before, to share the stage with and have dinner with Usain Bolt and Richard Branson and speak, you know, to, to have dinner with Branson and ask the questions I always dreamed of, of asking him to then, you know, get a phone call this year from Channel 7 to have this other opportunity that will extend me. Um, what I do know is that works. And mm. so if I keep myself anchored in those philosophies, people see them mm. and people want you to be a part of their team yeah. and then ex- these wonderful future opportunities come up. Um, it doesn't mean I live in this this world. You know, I, I, I love creating new ideas. I love transforming um, and thinking of how can we do things better. Um, I am really excited about um, – doing some TV work, um, that will be a new, a new adventure for me and a new um, opportunity maybe. Um, I'm, sport has really pulled me back in. I uh, haven't, been, haven't been deliberate in being involved in sport. I never want to coach. I don't want a physio in sport. However, I've had um, sport keeps pulling me back in terms of leadership opportunities. Uh, one of my exciting opportunities is actually I'm part of the leadership team for the next Commonwealth Games in I Birmingham next yeah. year. So I'm working with Patria Thomas, who's our chef de mission. Mm-hmm. I'm working alongside of Anna Mears and Cheryl McMahon um, and Tim Mayen, who's our chief executive officer. And so to have an opportunity from a leadership point of view to we're taking our team of, you know, four to 600, I'm not sure, what, yeah. to Birmingham, that's exciting yeah, for that me. So I'm now taking my skill set that I've learned through this last 21 years back to sport and that wasn't my choice sports asking me to so that's that's exciting actually it's amazing the way things can yeah turn, turn back, the way the universe talks that's right so yeah. for me it's I really feel so comfortable in the fact that I'm I've learned about leadership I, I really love well-being and resilience and mental health and in sport it, the, the things that I've learned to master over the last 21 years, the universe is kind of bringing them all together now for me to go to, to the next level. who knows what's next, but it excites me, yeah. And then with Brisbane, Brisbane well, 2032, yeah. you never know, I could yeah. have a role, a deep role of bringing, I would love I would love that to bring the Paralympics to Australia in 2032. You know, I'll be 55, a great opportunity for me to really get into some legacy work there would be amazing. Yeah. We'll be sitting back watching uh, <laughs> yeah. watching the show, the Katrina Web show. Yeah. Um, some quick five questions. Okay, you've rattled off a few books today. Yes. We're a big we're a big uh, big reading company here. Big reading uh, yeah, community. We love, we love our books. Um, what are you reading right now? Oh, I'm I'm actually finishing Untamed um, oh, by yes. Glennon Doyle. Yeah. Um, I'm listening. I'm a good yeah. audio book. Audio books so away. I love it. I've nearly finished. I've got about 20 minutes left on that. Brilliant. I really enjoyed that one. What's one book? You've, you've recommended The Happiness Trap mm. early, earlier. Yeah. What's another book that you could recommend for, for a leader who is, let's, let's put it in the perspective of a leader who is, Looking to improve themselves mm-hmm. uh, and first yeah. as opposed to seeking to improve others. Um, one of my other favourites, um, Braving the Wilderness, yeah, yeah, Brene Brown. If you haven't read that one, I, I loved that one. Mm. I thought it was brilliant. Um, I'm a big fan of her work. Yeah. Fantastic. Finding yourself and where you belong. 
Yeah, we're yes. Renee Fran- yeah. Fancy. When you realise you don't belong anywhere, you belong everywhere. Yeah. Which is ext- and that's what leader, That's what you need to. If you're driven by ego and belonging, you've really got to unpack that. So, yeah, yeah. Braving the Wilderness would be my suggestion. If you Michelle, ready. my business partner, went and spent time with Brene in, awesome. in America. Like oh, in, in, So yeah. we're big, big Brene. So yeah, she's, she's accredited in that, the, the Dare to Lead stuff. So Dare to Lead's are really. Yeah, I loved it. I've, yeah, I've gone and done a couple of days of Dare to Lead. Yeah, Love that work. That's exciting. Beautiful. So th- you've been at, uh, you've sat next to Usain Bolt, Richard Branson, shared the stage with Jack Ma. I've seen photos with you with, next to Roger Federer. Yeah. If you could have, um, if you could invite someone or three people over for dinner, yeah. who would they be? That's a great question. Um, see, Richard Branson was always on my list and I often ask people the same thing because once you have clarity, well, you, you actually can, it can, it can happen. Like yeah. that moment, I remember going, I always wanted to meet him and now I'm chatting to him about day-to-day stuff, which was really amazing. Um, who would be on my list? That's a really interesting question. Um, I, I would love to, with my link to Buddhism, um, would love to have the Dalai Lama um, at the dinner table. Um who else am I enjoying at the moment? Um, great questions. Uh, Brene Brown. I haven't met, met her yet. Yeah. She's on my um, to-do list. Yeah, well, she, yeah, <laughs> of getting speakers involved um, in some of the programs I um, run. I'd love, to, I'd love to have her at an event. That's that. You know, I say to people, just just have these big hairy goals. I don't even care if they, yeah. they're awesome. Well, you could. Have, it just right? comes at a price, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, you know what I mean? Like it, you're putting putting provisions on that there. Yeah, but, yeah, right. you never know. Um, who else? You've said three, haven't you? Yeah. Who would my third one be um, today? I'm not sure. I'm just going to have two today. Two? Yeah. No, don't worry. Uh, you've talked about some of the advice you received. What's the one thing? That hands down changed was the was the time we the turning point in your life. What's some of that advice that you received? Yeah, uh, you know, you talk to someone like actually talk to someone that knows how to um, talk you through your thinking, whether that's like a psychologist or a counselor. I, I would say to people, have a great professional support team and mm. have it written down when times are good. Know who you can go and talk to, um, and. It's not a sign of weakness. Um, it's a sign of greatness um, mm. and um, incredible um, smarts that you have people to talk to. That would be as simple as that because when I've talked to people, that's where I've found the answers to what I need to do next. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I love it. Build a team. Build a team. Build a team around you. Yeah. People that you can rely on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you've had access to a time machine... <laughs> Where would you go? Get a one-way trip, uh, one, not one-way trip, one trip up and back. Where would you go? I I would love to go to the top of Everest in a time machine and to experience being on top of Everest. Yeah, I have no desire to climb it. So if, if the time machine could take me yeah. there to experience that. When, a, when in, in a different era? Oh. Or? Yeah, gosh. Because you can go anywhere, anytime. You can go anywhere, You can meet anyone. Um, That's, yeah, that would be a really lovely thing to do. That would just be to put me there like teleport like my kids would Mm -hmm. say. Um, A time machine. um, 
oh gosh, there's so many different things in who you could meet um, in different times. Um, I don't know, actually. That's probably my answer there now. It's forward back. Forward. Um, see what the future's like. I'm a big not really, we, no. Yeah, see, most people want to. Do they want to go the They want to go back. Yeah. I was thinking, how. Do you know what, what – and I will <laughs> tell you this is me. Um, I don't know if there's other Outlander fans out there. I know there's a lot but there's other people that don't like it. I really enjoyed how they put that together to take yeah. you back to this, the Scottish Highland Times yeah, yeah. and I found that amazing. In fact, after watching that on my list of places to go is to to that time. So um, I feel like that was an experience of history and yeah. that moment of which was extraordinary. I loved doing that. So – um, that would be um, that moment. There was a really great Netflix documentary I, ro- I watched recently actually um, called Crip Camp. I don't know if anyone's seen right. that, if they want to watch something on the weekend. Um, it's a wonderful documentary about the disability movement in America mm-hmm. um, and what they did to really get um, human rights available for everyone. Um, to go back into their time and to to be in the room where they really found their voice, um, that would be extraordinary. Be it, yeah, to see that that revolution happen, uh, worth watching actually. Called Crip mm. Camp. Yeah, it's a story well, that's well, need to be. Yeah, heard. I'll check it out. We'll put it in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> if you had one superhero power, oh, my son asked me this yesterday. Yes, great. So you prepared? <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, we have this com- – we're three boys in the house. Oh. They're often asking this oh, one. I can talk about this forever. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> I need to know more, like, superhero powers. I found. We were chatting about this yesterday. Um, and then one of my sons, like, if I had a superhero power, I would um, ask for a wish and then I'd ask for a thousand more wishes and I would <laughs> go along that way. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. it's I find that really an interesting one because I my natural instinct is around – you know, being able to help people, um, mm. which is which is super, you know, superpowers. Um, um, but then I also know within that that I go back to our conversation before that we need to allow people to to learn themselves. Yeah, that's right. And that reminds me of the, the beautiful quote that Kurt Fernley was asked this question: If you could go back and ask your, you know, if you could go back and tell your twelve-year-old self something what would you tell yourself and he said I actually wouldn't tell my 12 year old self anything because I've needed to learn everything that I've needed to know and that that is I love that answer yeah um because yes we want to protect people um um however a part of building our character is to let people fall and fail and Mm. um so yeah and I know you know Gosh, a superhuman power, like living through this pandemic is not much fun at the moment, is it? So if you could have a superhuman um, Take a power my blood, to, busy, yeah, busy to get rid of this virus <laughs> and help us to live yeah. in, um, that would be awesome. Mm. What, yeah, what, what's, not, what's one of yours? What do you talk around with your family? I never get asked. Yeah, I, uh, yeah well, let me ask you. <laughs> I don't really know. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I, I ask this question all the time. You, there's, there's the typical... Well, no, actually, I do know. It's the it's the power of knowledge. I would like to be all knowing. Oh, wouldn't that be great? You just go. Well, I, you know everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it would be no. As in, if if you had to do something, you would just know how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that. Or well, could just speak in any language and. Yeah. Do well, that's it. Anything. Yeah, I could just travel anywhere, be absolutely comfortable 
that at any given time I've got the wisdom to be able to do what I need to do. Yeah, that's cool. It would be cool to be able to fly though too. I think it that would be, be pretty awesome. Just like maybe I could fly to the top of Mount Everest and not have to yeah. climb up it. Isn't the whole point of Everest that the climb is the, <laughs> that's the isn't that the pain that we're talking about? Oh, yeah, I, I just have no. It's funny for me. I, I actually that I, I, we've talked about pain. Yeah. I don't need to do that. Yeah. Um, and even though one of my best friends is an international mountain climb climber and uh, guide and climbed yeah. it six times, uh, he loves it. Um, if I had to climb it to be with him, I'd feel like I'd be in the best hands. But when I look at risks and yeah, for no me, doubt. yeah. I just think if you're flying, Everest is no longer a great feat. No. <laughs> you will, no, but so I, I would enjoy the view without having you to can, walk You can go it. higher if you wanted to. <laughs> true. You can choke Branson up there in the rocket. rocket. That's um, true. And last joke before we finish up, yeah. you might not be prepared, but you're a son of three boys, so I'm sure you've got a shit joke somewhere. Shit so joke. what's your best mum joke? Oh, gosh, I know. I, I'm, I'm hopeless. I don't have a joke memory. Um, same with movie titles and same. But I often um, remember this one. How do you get Pikachu on the bus? Ow. Do you know the answer? No, I don't. <laughs> you Pokemon. <laughs> That's shocking. <laughs> That's a crap voice. <laughs> but That's not the only one I remember it's from worthy, my three It's boys. gone straight into the Hall of Fame. So thank <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Katrina. It's been absolutely amazing having you on the show and hearing your journey. You are an inspiration to all. Um, you've achieved so much um, and, like, you know, with with your back up against the wall from an early age and, and never really – I think what I really admire about you is you don't, you don't actually think that way. You just think, well, I'm, I'm human. I'm just going to keep trucking on, right? And that's the – I think that's something that we should all take is no matter where we're starting from and, and what point we're at, it's just how do I keep giving? How do I keep adding value? How do yeah. I keep trying to help people? Um, and that seems to be the path that you've taken on and it's very successful. So thank you for everything that you're doing for, for the community in Australia. It's amazing. Thank you. No, it's been a delight and thank you for, yeah, wonderful questions that you've asked and even that that initial moment that you started with today's podcast that was really special yeah thank you no worries thank you very much guys we'll uh, catch you next time cheers thank you once again for joining us here at creating synergy it's been great spending this time with you please jump on to the synergy iq facebook and linkedin page where the discussion continues after the show join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.